You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Bloomberg Audio Studios. Podcasts, radio, news. From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Caroline Hyde and Ed Ludlow. Hide at Bloomberg's World Headquarters in New York. Ed Ludlow, he is off. This is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up, all eyes on NVIDIA. As the $1.7 trillion chip company, it gears up for earnings results after the bell. Full coverage ahead. Plus, we stick with earnings and Palo Alto Networks heading for its biggest drop ever as customers face spending fatigue in cybersecurity. We'll bring you those numbers. And Google looks to build an open source AI community with the launch of its new model, Gemma, built on the same technology as its Gemini LLM. We'll discuss that and so much more throughout the hour. But first, let's check in on these markets because, look, we are seeing a little bit of fatigue, may we call it, in terms of purchasing of tech stocks right now. We are all waiting and watching to see whether the AI hype can be borne out in the reality of revenue uptick over at NVIDIA. Nasdaq off by six tenths percent. Interesting Chinese stocks moving a little bit higher on those US traded ones. That ultimately is being seen as China is putting in place some restrictions on selling, basically getting out of certain stocks and the open and the close of their trade. Could this support the market in the stock inflow and see some sort of rebound? That's being reflected here in US trade. I'm looking at Bitcoin under pressure just by 1.8%. We're still at about a $51,000 handle, but still a little bit of risk aversion today that sinks into that particular area of risk assets. Move on and have a look at what the individual movers are doing on a day like today because look I've got to focus on what's been happening more broadly on the world of Palo Alto Networks as you see 26% lower a quarter of its market capitalization erased on one day as they look actually on their fiscal quarter that they just had lived up to expectations but their forecast is where we're worried about Bytes Technology interesting one traded over in the UK off by more than 9% as the CEO suddenly steps down as he said he's been making some trades and not been telling executives or shareholders that's a UK AI and cyber and software company to keep an eye on and Nvidia as we say down some 2% ahead of their earnings look we are all waiting and watching as to whether this 1.7 trillion dollar company can live up to the 200% growth in revenue that market is anticipating Kunjin Sabah is here with us. I'm so pleased to say Bloomberg Intelligence. More on NVIDIA and just tell us a little bit, Kunjan, on ultimately where the worry is. Has the market priced in the right sort of level of growth for this earnings number? 
Definitely. I mean, look, the market, the stock is priced for perfection. And we again expect a robust print and guide. Uh, the supply has come in strong. Uh, lead times have shrunk, but so has the demand continues to still outpace supply, especially as momentum in enterprise AI spending continues to rise. So that increases the odds of another beat and rise. And they are integral to AI infrastructure. They are integral to building out of AI models. What's interesting, though, is in the past, China has been integral to it. Are we likely to get any guidance on how much geopolit geopolitics still affects the business and how much they can sell into that country? Yes, I mean, recently, you know, Jensen has been sort of on a world tour meeting with uh, heads of different governments and different geographies, uh, including China. So we do expect some kind of commentary on that. Um, the numbers for this quarter have been dearest that China will be significantly lower than what we have seen in the past. But in the near term, we think they can offset the, the, the demand that they could have shipped to China by shipping to other regions, which, again, continue to see significant increase in demand. We will see how all of that lives off. I mean, really, Kunjan, what's been so interesting has been some of the take from other analysts out there today. Scott Rubner, Goldman Sachs, really saying NVIDIA is the most important stock on planet Earth. We'll see how you analyze that stock a little bit later. Bloomberg Intelligence Analyst Kunjan Sabani, thank you so much for the breakdown ahead of those numbers after the bell. But let's make this broader. Let's see how this particular stock fits in with the rest of the industry group and indeed markets more generally. So pleased to welcome Kristen Bitterly, Citigroup Wealth Head of Investment Solutions to the show. And Kristen, when you think about the most important stock on planet Earth, I mean, is, it, is this the bellwether? Do we sort of throw all the Fed concerns and talk and, and print that we're going to get from Fed minutes out the window? This is clearly the, the key catalyst, at least for today and maybe this week. But I, I think, look, this is earnings after the close today. It's really about whether or not this AI story has more legs in terms of the momentum that we've seen in the market. I think one of the things that we're looking at, though, is we can talk about the Magnificent Seven. We can talk about the concentration in market breadth. But it has been backed up by delivering superior earnings. Mm. And when you have earnings growth that's in the ballpark of 25 percent plus, it is something that actually compels the valuations that we see and actually continued inflows into these companies. And some might say actually NVIDIA remarkably cheap in comparison to where we've seen in terms of the run-up of the overall share price. But the spillover effects here, the fact that people are looking out for anything that has AI in its name, many have felt that it's kind of a rerun of crypto in some way. But are they justified from your perspective more broadly on a macro perspective? What productivity is going to be borne out for these companies? I think when we look at these very large companies that have performed quite well. We have to remember, just going back to 2022, they did not perform well at all. So you were saying quite the opposite story where you saw declines of 50, 60 plus percent. Now looking at this, like I said, it is backed up by earnings. You're looking at the Magnificent Seven represent close to 20% of the earnings contribution of the U.S. equity market. We're only going back to 2017, it was 5%. So they have delivered an earnings growth. I do think, though, as an investor, it's important to have exposure here, but it's also important of exposure as to who are the beneficiaries. The play when it comes to the technology and the enablers, very clear. I think the adopters is where investors are really looking for gains within 2024. Okay, so dig into that. Is it going for specific names in healthcare, specific names in industry that have managed to talk up a good game in AI, or have, do, you, do you have to see the proof in the pudding before you start allocating money? I think it's a little bit of a show-me story in 2024. I think, you know, when you just look at AI in terms of the number of times it's been mentioned in earnings calls. It's come down. I think like last quarter it was 6,000 times and now it's about 2,000. <laughs> but I, I do think that when you look at 
sectors that stand to benefit from this. I know cybersecurity very much in the news based on last night's earnings, but you look at something like cybersecurity and you say, okay, comparing the run-up of that sector versus the broader AI Magnificent Seven, there's a comparative difference there and a valuation difference. Actually, on a forward PE basis, you're looking at valuations that we haven't seen since 2020 within that sector. And when I think of the applications and the adopters of Gen AI, not only in an area with cybersecurity does that increase the total addressable market and the demand side of the equation, but there are real productivity gains when it comes to what used to take a security analyst hours to do can come down to minutes. And we're going to see those productivity gains in 2024. Make that macro for us. There has been a perspective that the Fed is going to start maybe talking about the productivity gains that AI can bring more broadly to the U.S. labor force. And the fact that we do have a tight labor force, people still wanting to be hired, we do seem to see, see growth within it. Will we see productivity gains, do you think, more broadly in a macro perspective? I think from a macro perspective, we have to go back to, even though we've seen volatility in the inflation print, we have to go back to what we know is true and where we're going to see flows from an investing standpoint. So what do we know to be true right now? We know that there's $6 trillion sitting on the sidelines in money market funds. That has increased by $1.5 trillion since the Fed started its hiking cycle. Mm. We know that we're at peak Fed funds rates. The question is, when does the Fed start cutting? I don't think there's too many arguments that the Fed would resume a hiking cycle. Inflation, we knew it was going to be a bumpy ride down to the 2% target. We see a path maybe down to 2.5% by the end of this year. And earnings have troughed. And I think that's an important thing when we look at this broadening, not only just because of inflation coming down, rates coming down, cash on the sidelines, earnings troughed in Q3 of last year. Mm -hmm. And now we're seeing more sectors turn to profitability. So you have a profitability argument in addition to then productivity gains. And it might be an argument, therefore, when you come back to your theme of cyber, of buying on weakness. What we love about having you on shows across our network is the themes that you bring. Where else are you seeing sort of forces that cannot be argued with, even in a Federal Reserve that potentially doesn't start cutting as soon as we anticipate. Another area that we love, and you're probably going to laugh because you've heard me talk about this for years, is longevity and investing in... It's very in, tech. It really I know. works for the show. It really does. <laughs> it kind of does work. So we'll bring it full circle in terms of AI gains there as well. But longevity is another area that was left behind last year. So when you look at healthcare, it was really exclusively about GLP-1 drugs mm -hmm. until the last two months of the year. And then biotech started to get a little bit of a bid. Medtech started to get a a little bit of a bid and life sciences. And so this is the same type of argument when you think of productivity gains, when you think of enhancements, when you think of what technology can do in bringing down the cost of healthcare, there are a lot of compelling valuation opportunities, both for the short term, but also for the long term. We love the themes, we love the perspective, the macro commentary. Thanks so much for coming Thank in you. today. Enjoy the healthy dose of earnings after the bell. Kristen Bitalicia, Citigroup Wealth Head of Investment Solutions. Apple, it's upgrading the security of its iMessage app to fend off a looming future threat, advanced quantum computing attacks. Let's bring in Bloomberg's Mark Gurman for more. And we talk a lot about quantum computing, but the reality hasn't yet arrived, but Apple wants to front run that. 
Yeah, thank you so much for having me. That's right. Quantum computing, some estimates indicate that these types of computers, which are super duper computers, not just super computers, so to speak, <laughs> uh, won't arrive until the tail end of the decade uh, or deep into the 2030s. But Apple's starting to prepare for that with iMessage. Let me tell you why. There's something called harvest now, decrypt later attacks, right? What that means is someone could steal some data now, even though it's un. Uh, breakable now, quantum computers in the future may be able to break it open, right? So Apple wants to stop that from happening. They don't want someone to collect or steal someone's iMessage data in the year 2025 and then crack it open in 2032. And so that's what this new iMessage PQ3 technology is going to do. It's much improved encryption uh, for the platform. It's rolling out uh, next month when Apple releases its next software updates, iOS 17.4 being the big one. And then it's going to become the default uh, for all iMessage conversations by the end of this Mm. year. And saying it's more efficient or effective at least than Signal, of course, than other competitors out there, WhatsApp and the like. Mark, I'm interested in also your reporting that you've done overnight on really some executive changes going on at Apple. This seems to be a never-ending story. Yeah, it's interesting. More executive changes at Apple. This one in its audio division, uh, Gary Jeeves, who's their vice president of acoustics, one of their top uh, executives related to audio, uh, really has been the leader and at the forefront of the development of AirPods over the last decade or so, uh, which obviously now is a 15 to $20 billion a year business for Apple. He has stepped down uh, as of this week from his role. He's given that role to his top deputy. He's going to remain for the next several months at Apple as an advisor, right? So no longer running the team, but an advisor to Apple's executive in charge of Beats, uh, AirPods now, the HomePod, and other audio products. So more executive changes. This comes after DJ Novotny, who was a, a key vice president of hardware engineering there, left to be a senior vice president of program management at Rivian earlier this year. Tang Tan, the vice president of design for the iPhone, the Apple Watch, and AirPods. He's going to join former Apple design chief Johnny Ive at his company, Love From, working on new AI products with Sam Altman. And you've seen Mm. a large chunk of Apple's industrial design team leave as well. So uh, this is not a departure yet, uh, but uh, key executives stepping down from their role. Changing of the guard. Mark Gurman, always ahead of it. We thank you so much for the insights. Now, let's turn our attention to talking tech, and we're going to stick with the theme of executive reshuffling. SpaceX, seeing a rare high-level departure in its corporate ranks. According to reporting from CNBC, the company's senior vice president of its commercial business is leaving after spending more than a decade working there and was personally responsible for bringing in over a billion dollars of annual revenue. Meanwhile, Samsung has sold its entire remaining stake in ASML. That's as it pushes into new areas of chip making. Now, the world's largest memory maker sold its remaining shares in the Dutch company as it really tries to work to catch up with rival SK Hynix in high bandwidth memory chips, which are used to help NVIDIA's accelerators train artificial intelligence. Plus, Sam Bamman-Fried is heading back to court today for the first time since his November conviction. That's over a multi-billion dollar fraud in cryptocurrency customers, of course. Batman Freed is slated to answer questions from a federal judge as to whether he is aware of potential conflicts of interest for the lawyers he hired last month to represent him at sentencing in March. His new attorneys also represent another crypto mogul facing criminal charges. Coming up, Vice President and General Manager of Google Workspace going to be joining us. Apana Pabu joining us to talk about how Duet AI is turning into Google Workspace. And it became Gemini. That's next. Watching shares of Amazon, meanwhile. Let's have a quick look at what's happening in terms of, well, 
up eight, nine tenths of a percent. Why? It's entering the Dow Jones Industrial Average. What falls out? Walgreens. This is Bloomberg Technology. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. talk about Google for a moment because it's got a lot of announcements. First up, it's introducing new open large language models that it's calling Gemma. This reversing the company's kind of general strategy of keeping the company's proprietary artificial intelligence technology out of public view, but the models will handle text only, have been built from the same research and technology used to create the company's flagship AI model Gemini, and Gemma will be released in two sizes. One targeted at customers who plan to develop AI software using high capacity AI chips and data centers, and then a smaller model for more cost-efficient app building. And many would say, actually, given the transformers being given to the community, in many ways, Google has been open sourcing. Meanwhile, let's stick with Google in another way in which you're using it perhaps at the enterprise. Some more news coming out that starting today, Duet AI for Google Workspace is going to have a brand new name and you guessed it, it's Gemini. Workspace customers will be able to chat with Gemini in a new way and the chat experience will have enterprise-grade data protections as well as copyright indemnification. Here to join us, the Vice President and General Manager of Google Workspace, Aparna Papu. It is great to have you with us, Aparna. And number of ways it feels to be using Gemini now. When I'm sat at my work desk, how do you envisage people working with it to improve their productivity? Well, first of all, we're super excited to have Workspace enter the Gemini era. As you said, Workspace comprises of apps that people use every day in their life, from Gmail, Docs, Drive, Sheets, Meet, you name it. And so to have Gemini infused there to make all of your work journeys more productive is fantastic. So we're already seeing people do lots of interesting things like helping them write better, mm -hmm. making them sound more professional, perhaps making them sound more playful. And so today's announcement is really exciting because Gemini in Workspace just up-levels all of the things that AI can help you do in your work life. And what many people might not realize is over 3 billion people do use Google Workspace. And I'm, therefore, you can garner so much data as to how it's being effectively deployed, who, what types of people, where geographically. But 
what are the guardrails that a lot of your clients are going to be asking you for? Because that has been almost the nervousness, the reticent about the new world of generative AI. So one of the things that we hold very dear is our promise to users about privacy, security, and compliance. And with Workspace, we offer enterprise-grade security for all of our Gemini features, which means you're in control of your data, your data never leaks into the models, you get your data is never used for advertising. And so that level of security and compliance being made available now to all of our Gemini users is something that we're very proud of. What's interesting is, of course, when I think about workspace, I think of enormous corporations in which I currently sit, but small and medium size enterprises have got to have been wanting to use generative AI in their heart too, right? Absolutely. We just did a survey where 87% of small businesses, small and medium-sized businesses, are all ready to use generative AI. And so given our user customer base of over 10 million customers, mm -hmm. we're excited to bring Gemini today with a brand new launch at a lower price point to businesses of all sizes all over the world. And so with that launch, we now enable small businesses to get more done every single day as well. Talk to us about ultimately the pricing of this. How does one come up with what real value is worth in this and, and not be sort of blown around by ultimately what other competitors are pricing their points at? So we feel very strong about our, our pricing strategy. It's robust. It's based on a number of factors, not just what the market can bear, but also the perceived value of our customers. Because ultimately, it comes down to customers and what they're willing to pay for. And this is where we started with a $30 version for our enterprise customers and a $20 version for smaller businesses or enterprises who want to get started but are not quite sure where to begin. And I said at the beginning, sort of with the breadth of 3 billion users, how are you seeing it being used differently in different places? Oh, it's so wonderful. They're so creative and clever. People tell us stories all the time of things that they're doing with it. We have small business people who are actually just wanting to focus on their businesses. So, for example, a music teacher really just wants to teach music, but often has to respond to inbound inquiries all the time. And so getting help replying to emails while sounding, you know, factual and professional is actually really fantastic. We love the stories where people for whom English is a second language have been, you know, their work has been transformed by how it makes them sound at work and gives them more confidence. Creativity unlocked with things like image generation with slides. If you're trying to brainstorm how you might think about a new product and so on, just coming up with visual aids of like visualize what this idea might look like really helps unlock some of the brainstorming. Banks using it for executive management, event planners using it to get events done. I mean, I could go on and on. It's actually just uh, truly tremendous what our customers are doing with it already. And look, you're a long time Google executive, decades under the belt. And Tell us a little bit about how it's felt when, as we said at the beginning of this conversation, you, with, of course, DeepMind, have been really R&D focused, all things artificial intelligence, injecting things like transformer R&D into the broader ecosystem. But then came this idea that you were behind the curve, that you were following on from Microsoft and OpenAI teaming together. How have you been able to diffuse that? Have you been able to think that that's not true? I think ultimately customers decide, and when customers use our products and they tell us that they're more helpful, more intuitive, easy to use, and actually deliver the value, and it's not just about the hype, I think that's where we need to focus is, what are our real users saying as opposed to all of the hype around this? And so we love our partnership with DeepMind because ultimately Google's focus on the user and making sure that we're actually helpful to the user is what differentiates us from everybody else. Okay, so there is a lot of feeling that there's hype. How are you in reality, as just 
someone that uses Gmail and Docs and not just someone who's in charge of workspaces using generative AI on a daily basis? So many people, so many ways. So first of all, uh, both at my work life and my personal life, I often feel overwhelmed with email. Um, yes. <laughs> actually, in my personal life, more so these days because schools and businesses and package tracking and all of these things. So having Gmail be a really helpful assistant to me by showing me the summaries of the endless long emails I get has saved me a lot of time at work, at, at home, which has been helpful. Same thing applies at work as well. And, you know, for example, I was prepping for an interview. How does one do a broadcast interview? Got some really great tips from, from Gemini, actually. And it's like, be confident, be yourself. There's just all sorts of ways in which it just makes you a little bit more confident about what you're doing, freeing up your time to do other things. Helps you be yourself in the best possible way. You can go back and say to Gemini, you're pretty darn good. Thank you very much indeed, <laughs> Vice President and General Manager of Google Workspace, Apana Papu there, on all things of its injection into Gemini, into the workplace. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Caroline Hyde in New York. Let's check in on these markets because a little bit of a pullback, a little bit of caution ahead of, of course, the all-important earnings after the bell today. Have a check in on what's happening with the Nasdaq 100. More broadly, softer, one of the worst performing benchmarks if you, if you compare it to the S&P. We're off by six tenths of percent. I'm looking at what's happening in bond markets right now. Calmness, ultimately, we're seeing 4.29, let's call it, on the 10-year at the moment as we all anticipate, of course, from the macro perspective, the Fed minutes that come a little bit later today. Looking at Bitcoin just off by 1.8% as risk assets sell off more broadly. Let's have a look at what's happening on individual names and particular stocks that are on the downside. And look, I'm just going to shine a light on the story of today as well as we anticipate NVIDIA. It's got to be what's happening with all of these cyber stocks. The numbers after the Bell of Palo Alto Networks, yes, they managed to meet that 19% growth in revenue for their previous fiscal quarter, but the forecast is going to be 16% growth. I'm afraid that's nowhere near the 25% we've all got rather used to. Palo Alto falling the most in its history on record. We're currently off by 26%, but we're also seeing CrowdStrike down and Zscaler or lower in sympathy today. But let's get back to the earnings that we still anticipate. Let's get back to NVIDIA results coming after the bell. And of course, here's what some of our guests have had to say and what they expect. Take a listen. There's 771 companies announcing this week, but there's really only one that matters, isn't that? Uh, and that is NVIDIA, of course. The structural side is very exciting, obviously, uh, with AI in the key driver's seat. NVIDIA's earnings are going to be the story that we all anticipate and wait with bated breath. Expectations are high, Caroline. Uh, I think probably they'll deliver. You look at NVIDIA, there's no shortage of demand. I think it's going to be more about what Jensen says about the outlook, the growth, uh, and the product lineup mm. as opposed to what he actually delivers in the earnings. Look, there is so much hype about what this integral part of AI infrastructure can deliver. How are we deploying generative AI? How are we using it in our day-to-day? -day? Dion Nicholas, I'm pleased to say, is at the forefront of that. He's the CEO of Forethought. It's a company that uses generative AI for customer support. You're also into the world of agents, which is another key hype area at the moment, Dion. When we are seeing the whole market declaring that NVIDIA is the most important company on the planet, or stock at least, how do you think about this AI hype cycle? No, I agree, Caroline, and uh, thanks for having me back on the show. Um, when you think about it, like in a gold rush, it's really the picks and shovels that make the most money, and I think NVIDIA really is the picks and shovels business for AI. But at the end of the day, we're still in the early innings on the application layer, which I'm most excited about, mm -hmm. right? I actually think about all of the money that's being spent on things like outsourcing and things like that in the customer support world, and I think AI, Gen AI, and particularly AI agents are going to be the future of this industry. I think it's going to be one of the most massive software categories on the planet. To get there, 
you need access to compute. How have you managed to think around that, ensure that it's not eating so much of your costs that you ultimately have to just keep going to the market and raising more and more in the VC world? Agreed, especially over the last year and a half, call it, everything has been about efficiency, mm -hmm. right? And so not just in terms of people and spend like that, but in terms of compute power. And so you think about the algorithms that we use every single day, getting smarter and smarter, not just on the application layer, but using those algorithms to, to be smarter with our compute is how we do that. Okay, who have you turned to in terms of the ecosystem to help you with that? Who have been your hyperscalers of choice? Who have been your access to GPUs? Yeah, so um, we do a lot with OpenAI, for example. Mm -hmm. We do a lot with the uh, cloud players, so folks like Microsoft Azure, folks like Amazon, um, AWS, and things like that. We actually announced a partnership with AWS a few months ago. So what we're trying to do is be, I would say, agnostic to mm -hmm. what's going on in the underlying layer and make sure that we can have failovers, fallbacks, and all of that so that we can deliver a robust system for our customers. And let's talk about what you're delivering at the moment. You're with Instacart, Upwork, plenty of other companies turning to you to basically make my experience when using those apps more joyous, right? Uh, where are we in the innings of, of development of having generative AI making my experience better? Absolutely. So at Forethought, we've been delivering AI for the past six years, and so it's exciting to see this, uh, this boom, so to speak, in the Gen AI world. Um, but at the end of the day, I think we're still very, very early, and there's so much more to be done in this space. At Forethought, we're delivering AI agents for customer support. We're already solving more than 100 million uh, issues a year, every single year. And we think the technology is only going to get better. LLMs are just the beginning, and then we saw retrieval augmented LLMs or RAGs, and then we saw AI agents, which we actually announced here on Bloomberg about a year ago yeah. um, with our Autoflows technology, and I think it's going to keep getting better and better. AI agents, as I said, has been sort of all the talk of the town. And what's so interesting about the generative AI space is you all seem to be frenemies in some way. You're just <laughs> talking about how you're, you're leaning upon OpenAI in some way, but OpenAI has GPTs itself. You then got Brett Taylor, who's the chairman of OpenAI, coming in, and he's launching, of course, Sierra, which is also all about agents and customers. Where do you see the landscape being? How many players will there be? Again, as I said, I think this is going to be one of the largest software categories on planet Earth, mark mm -hmm. my words. And so there's going to be room for multiple players. And ultimately, I think what's happening is there's a shift from the old guard to the new guard. You've seen incumbents, companies like Zendesk and Salesforce and folks like that, scrambling to bring AI into their strategy. Because being the help desk or being the CRM is not necessarily going to cut it in an AI-first future. Yeah. right? And so what we're seeing and being validated by folks like Brett Taylor entering the space is that Gen AI and being AI first in this space is going to be the way of the future. How hard is it though when I can understand that an Upwork and Instacart, a already a startup, is probably more willing to go with a startup for its own customer delivery. But when you've got big, older institutions, they've just got Salesforce within them already. How hard is it to say, no, 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 come to this different offering? untwine yourself from the incumbent? I think that's a fair question. So what we're seeing is a lot of activity in the mid-market, SMB, companies who are embracing the future and things like that. A lot of these larger incumbent uh, companies, there's a lot of interest, there's a lot of hype, but are they actually making the changes? That's soon to be seen. And that's actually another thing as we talk about things like NVIDIA, um, a lot of the use cases seem to be experimental today, mm. right? And so I'm curious what's going to happen and what Jensen's going to say in terms of the outlook for the future as we start to see more these technologies become put into production? Who's going to keep and truly be an AI-first company, and who's just uh, experimenting? And then I'm sure Jensen might pay some lip service to the fact that it's hard to get talent as well and to scale at the spies that you want to. What are some of the things that hold back forethought, or what are some of the things that are helping you grow? 
Absolutely. I think talent is first and foremost the most important thing. We were founded on this generative AI vision, leveraging both our own research as well as research from folks like Chris Manning at Stanford, the godfather of NLP. Um, and in terms of holding us back, I mean, the sky's the limit in terms of this market. One of the things is that it's a very noisy market. Mm -hmm. Everyone is calling themselves a gen AI player. Everyone is throwing AI into their name. Um, uh, but in a lot of ways, again, we've been at this for many years. We've stayed at the forefront. And so it's really about showing customers what is true AI, what you can actually deliver and what that means for their customers. Dion, it's great to have you in town, passing through New York. Glad that you could stop by the show. Forethought CEO, co-founder, Dion Nicholas, of course, talking all things as we anticipate NVIDIA and more broadly the impact of generative AI. Meanwhile, coming up, we're going to be joined by Darren Abrahamson from Bain Capital's Tech Opportunities team to talk about where he's placing his bets. Everyone's in town today. He's coming over from Boston to be here in New York. Meanwhile, let's have a quick check on what's happening in terms of one of the AI darlings of choice of late, which has been selling off pretty hard over the last three trading days. Super microcomputer. Now, actually, short sellers have been notching about $1.2 billion of late as we've seen shares fall. We're down another seven and three quarters of a percent. But remember, this is a company that's up more than 700% in the last year. This is Bloomberg Technology. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice, or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Let's return to shares of Palo Alto Networks. Why? Because they're heading for the biggest drop ever. That's after the company cut its forecast amid a pullback in cybersecurity spending. Joining us now is Mandeep Singh of Bloomberg Intelligence. And Mandeep, the line that caught me from the CEO was that there's spending fatigue. And he says this is new. Yeah, well, uh, I, I think when you look at security, it's one of those things that has worked really well along with generative AI for the past few quarters. So it makes you wonder what changed in the last 90 days. And uh, they gave a prior guidance of about you know high teens growth for the full year, and now they cut it to low teens. So clearly, you know, they are seeing uh, a change in environment. They tried to explain that with you know a new go-to-market strategy, 
But you know, Palo Alto is the largest cybersecurity vendor, and they have had a lot of success with bundling uh, their products. So the fact that they are changing the go-to-market in an environment that should favor cybersecurity, it uh, is a little bit of a surprise, and that's why you see that kind of stock reaction. And we've seen a run-up of about 120% in the last year, which maybe is why we see this significant pullback, Mandeep. But when he went on to sort of outline that people don't want to spend at the moment unless they see a significant improvement. Well, the whole point of cybersecurity is ultimately to be a defense. How do you think that they and other competitors, CrowdStrike, can convince people to keep on spending that you need to in this environment? Yeah, it's a great point because the hyperscale cloud providers are all giving you security. It's bundled security that they are giving you. So these companies have to, you know, convince the customers that it's something extra. They're supporting a multi-cloud strategy and, and the defenses that the hyperscalers give are not enough. And in this case, I think Palo Alto has to make that shift from firewalls to new subscriptions, cloud-based revenue, which is a multi-year transition. They were doing well so far, but clearly the deceleration in top-line growth uh, is, is definitely spooking a few investors over here. That's for sure. Mandeep Singh, so great to have you on the show. Thank you, of Bloomberg Intelligence. Now we're going to turn our attention to the venture landscape, talk a little bit about cyber within it. And we're pleased to welcome to the show Darren Abramson. He's partner at Bain Capital's tech opportunities team on today's VC Spotlight, traveling in from Boston. And I'm interested, Darren, in whether you're hearing or seeing this from some of the startups that you've been investing in. I know cyber has been a theme, but all of us are talking about how generative AI means that we need more cyber protection, not a pullback or less. Yeah, I think it's really important that uh, you sort of put things in context. I think you pointed out in the prior segment, you know, Palo Alto's had a phenomenal run-up, and a lot of the cyber companies um, really uh, outperformed over the last year. As CFOs and customers look to cut back spend in other areas of technology, cyber was one of those areas that remained very resilient. But when we talk to chief information security officers, what we're hearing a lot now is, particularly in the enterprise, that they don't want another solution. They don't want to buy more. They need to actually figure out how to integrate what they've got and patch the holes that pop up inevitably when you integrate uh, and implement a lot of new technologies. Um, that being said, to your point, the underlying threats persist, and I think AI is going to accelerate that. Just the, the ease at which a hacker can now you know, spoof or fish or spam or do other things in a much more sophisticated way, I think makes the cyber attack surface you know, ever more dangerous. And so we do see a lot of innovative new companies that are solving those problems, as well as in other segments of the market, you know, down market. We made an investment last year in a company called Blackpoint, um, which is an MD our solution and they bring in sort of all-in-one way to solve cyber problems for smaller customers hmm. and they're probably the highest growing company in our portfolio right now because the demand is still clearly there so I think it very much depends on the segment of the market the types of tools you're selling into interesting that you point out that Blackpoint cyber was a check you wrote last year where else have you been deploying your capital therefore in this whole environment where generative AI sucked the oxygen out of the room have you just been leaning into that theme or finding other ways yes yeah, so so our fund um, is really more sort of late-stage growth equity and, and even into some small growthier buyouts. And so we're not, we have a separate venture capital fund. I think you've spoken to some of my, my partners from that team before. Um, you know, we really were born to sit in between our venture effort and our large cap private equity effort and sort of 
fill that gap for later stage companies. And so for us, the generative AI sort of theme, which is obviously pervasive across the tech ecosystem, uh, is less of a direct investment opportunity. I think that's earlier stage, you know, more risky, more venture capital. Um, you know, for us, what we're looking for is established businesses, often founder-owned and led, um, who have reached some scale and are looking for not just capital but support to kind of help get to the next level. So, you know, how do they get from 50, 75, 100 million of revenue to two, three, 400 million? And that may be things like we need some outside help in thinking about how to leverage generative AI to drive our own process efficiency and find ways to innovate in our product set segment. It may be going to do their first scale acquisition. It may be entering a new market. And so we tend to be more focused right now on how we can help our portfolio companies as well as new investments leverage generative AI as opposed to sort of trying to back the next you know, model or sort of pure AI company, if you will. Now, over time, that will evolve. Uh, but for now, that just feels to us a little bit early and a little more sort of speculative than, than our focus. And in that less speculative, more mature business, there has been sort of a tough environment. Ultimately, people not wanting to write such bigger checks to such bigger companies, or indeed seed being very active, other areas still slightly concerned amid the economic environment. Has that changed at all? Have you actually found that, no, there was this real sweet spot where companies are actually revenue generating, profit generating, and that's where you want to be writing the checks? Yeah, I think, you've, uh, again, I think there's different segments of the market where we play. So uh, what we did see in the back half of last year is activity really start to pick out on the buyout side of our business. So growth year, sort of mid-market buyouts, um, you know, companies that are high-quality businesses of scale, have some profitability, and in many cases have existing investors who are starting to think about liquidity mm-hmm. after a period of, of, you know, the environment where it was tougher to do so. And so that part of our business has picked up quite significantly. And who's doing the buying? Who, what, well, are they tending to go with other smaller companies? Are they being bought by larger companies? It's a, it's a combination. Um, I'd say in many cases where, where we're looking, it's new financial investors coming in with a new thesis and, you know, providing some liquidity. Uh, in other cases, some of our portfolio companies, you know, bigger, better capitalized businesses are looking to take advantage and drive M&A uh, as well. And then you're seeing some activity from larger strategics, although I'd say that's still, you know, less active. Obviously, the IPO markets haven't been mm-hmm. a real path for this. So the buyout side of our business has been quite active and really picked up over the last quarter or two. Um, the, la- the growth side, I'd say, is a tale of, of two worlds. If you were one of the companies that raised, you know, at peak multiples, very, you know, the, the top of the market in 2021, it's still difficult to go back to market. Uh, people are still, you know, somewhat stigmatic about down rounds, and we're seeing a little bit more of that ease up. Um, but that part of the market, I think those companies still need to grow into those valuations for the most part. However, where we tend to focus is a lot of founder-owned businesses who didn't raise money during that period of time, and where we're sort of the first institutional capital coming in. And that's very different. The dynamics there are around relationship and partnership. And it's less about what's going on in the macro and more about when that specific founder identifies an opportunity to do something different with their business and wants the right partner to help them do that. And that tends to be a pretty active segment of the market where we found actually all of our investments last year were a flavor of that, for example. And those founders who have either been bootstrapped or have had wealth to be able to invest themselves beforehand, are they coming from East Coast of America? Are they generally US? Are you looking more further afield and globally? It's a great question. You know, we're big believers that there are great companies being built all over the world. So we have investments in Japan and Brazil and Europe and Israel uh, and all over the US. 
Um, interestingly, only one of our portfolio companies is actually from the Bay Area. We have two from Nebraska, two phenomenal software companies, um, all up and down the East Coast. And so I, I think it really speaks to this idea of there's talent everywhere, um, and technology is transforming industries around the world. And so our job is to go find those founders, and often they're not in places you might expect, but they're building you know, phenomenal businesses kind of under the radar, um, and, and eventually we'll get to a size and scale where they want a partner like us to help them sort of scale and grow. And how do you find those founders? What does your pipeline look like? Is it introductions of one founder-led business turning to another founder-led business saying they've been a great partner? Is it people that you know have been banked, they've banked with? I mean, how have you found these sorts of so? This is where I think being part of a, a firm and a platform like Bain Capital is really advan- advantageous. Um, you know, we've been investing in the tech ecosystem for really our, our history. This is our 40-year anniversary. And so there's a huge amount of relationships and networks around the world. Uh, we obviously have a venture capital business. And so they're seeing a lot of companies at the earlier stages, some of which they invest in, many they don't. But those relationships persist and, and ultimately may grow into things that are relevant for us. And then there's a lot of just proactive sort of outreach. You know, our team is traveling all over the world, all over the country, um, in very targeted sectors. We like to really focus on sub-segments of the market that we know well, specific pockets of cybersecurity, vertical software, healthcare IT, fintech. And so within those, we're trying to be very thematic around, okay, these are the segments, these are the companies, these are the founders, and how do we get in front of them, build those relationships, which in many cases take, you know, four, five, six years until they result in any kind of transaction opportunity. Um, And so a lot of our time and effort is really spent there. It's a relationship business. Thanks for spending some of that time with us today. Darren Abramson, he's partner at Bain Capital's Tech Opportunities team. Universal Music, it snapped up a minority stake in Chord Music Partners. That's a company that owns more than 60,000 songs by the likes of John Legend or Lord or The Weeknd and more. And the music giant is actually paying $240 million for a 25.8% stake in the business. Here with more on why Bloomberg's Michelle Davis. And the reason is, what sort of exposure to music rights to them bring to the masses? How do they benefit? So Universal Music already owns a ton of music mm. rights. Um, you'll remember a big deal they did a couple years ago was buying Bob Dylan's whole catalog. Um, but this, by being a minority of investor, they're going to have exposure to these music rights in this particular catalog without being a direct owner. Universal Music, as well as a lot of other big media co- music companies, media companies are under pressure right now to show returns to their shareholders. And this is kind of an indirect way for them to do that without spending too much, you know, dipping their toes in ter- in, into this particular catalog um, without just putting too much of their balance sheet behind it. But I think it all speaks to a much bigger trend within the music industry where some of the traditional, you know, Wall Street firms like KKR, Apollo, Blackstone, that really poured, in, poured money into the industry a few years ago when music valuations were surging, They've all been looking for an exit because, mm-hmm. you know, private equity, even outside of music, outside of entertainment, they, their LPs want them to show some returns, to return some money. As it's gotten more expensive to them, for them to invest in stuff with rates going up, they've been under pressure to, to show that, that money to them. And this, for KKR, you know, exiting this is one way for them to, to do that. So Dundee Partners takes the other 70 odd percent of it and that's run by the Hendel family. Ultimately, what does Universal Music benefit its shareholders with, with right with rights ownership? Is it that they think the value will go up on the rights of the music or they can use it in different and more interesting manners? I think that's part of the assumption is you have to expect that the value will go up. It's also a predictable revenue stream for them, you yeah. know? You know 
right now a lot of the music industry has recovered because we've figured out streaming compared to 20 years ago when you know the music industry didn't know what to do with everyone pirating music streaming is a thing now but they're still facing a lot of disruption uh, there's questions around what will happen with TikTok and AI how that will affect everything so this just gives them a predictable revenue stream um, to build a show investors well said Michelle Davis we thank her for her time on all that is transactions within the music industry meanwhile that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology you do not want to forget to check out our podcast got so much more to wrap up and of course stay braced for NVIDIA earnings after the bell we'll be digesting that tomorrow this is Bloomberg Technology the countdown has begun this May a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.